Hello, welcome to today's quarantine episode of Juicing the Numbers, your movies and TV podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Tracy. And I'm going out. And today we have a combination title mashup game. Uh, we are we watched um, 1982's The Thing and 1989 uh, Do the Right Thing. Uh, Corwin, are you ready to talk about these very different but share some words titled movies? I am very much ready to talk about Do the Right the Thing. <laughs> or Do the Thing Right. <laughs> no, mine's better. Shut up. Yours is better. <laughs> um, anyway, so where, where would you like to start? Um, I'm pretty indifferent. Uh, both of these are kind of fresh. I definitely have a lot more to talk about with Do the Right Thing because I feel like there's... Just going so to be more to talk more about there to talk about yeah um i have seen the thing most recently i watched that this morning uh so yeah. your call let's let's start with the thing because we're we are both almost certainly going to have more to say about do the right thing um cool, cool, as cool. it's a lot less surface level than uh than the thing is so the thing 1982 uh, directed by John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster for the screenplay, and John W. Campbell uh, Jr. for the story, starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, Keith David, amongst others. Uh, it has no Oscar nominations of any kind, not a surprise. Uh, it has an estimated budget of $15 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of $19.6 million, so it was a uh, relative success. Although what's interesting is it has its gross USA listed as 19.6 million. And then it has this cumulative worldwide gross at 19.6 million. So I'm guessing the world number is just dodgy because there's no way this movie didn't make any money in literally any other place other than the U S. So that's weird. How um, it, but its budget was $15 million. Yeah. Where? Which Give, well, given all the practical effects, the amount of shit that they blew up, the fact that there's helicopters in this movie, at least two different ones, um, plus the big marquee um, star that is Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell, I can see it. Um, typically, a lot of these, uh, uh, typically a lot of movies like this chew up their budget through effects, um, and there are, I mean, there's like two different flamethrowers used in a lot of scenes, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's where it all went. All right. I'll take your uh, word for it. That's just my guess. I'm <laughs> based on really nothing. <laughs> but yeah, uh, how much do you think $15 million is in today money? Um, I'd say triple it. You're pretty fucking close. It's just under $40 million. Damn. Okay. Uh, you know, so, I, I you say know. that it's not like it's a movie that you can't tell that you know money was put into it, especially amazing for the time. Uh, you know, it's not something that they held anything back budget wise. This wasn't Blair Witch Project, it's just 15 million just seems like a lot of money for what's there. And we will get into what's there. Uh, the, the overall over arching plot of the film is about a research team located in Antarctica being hunted by a shape-shifting alien, um, and it renders them uncertain of everyone else's identity. 
So, Corwin, what did you think of this horror classic? Uh, it is not a film I have seen before this, and I'm very much not a horror movie guy. All that considered, I did think, as far as horror movies go, it was very well done. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, very early on watching this, that really, that first scene with the helicopter made me uh, stop, think, okay, this is not going to be a film based in the reality I live in. Let's just accept that, move on. And I am glad I went in with low expectations. I'm glad I went in with a very open mind because uh, it was, there was definitely, you know, a lot of scenes that were questionable in judgment and questionable in how that would actually go, like with any movie, especially horror movies. But that's usually an issue I have with that. The The suspension of disbelief is a hard thing for me to get past. Um, but in this, I felt like there was enough there where it's like, okay, this makes sense. This is believable. And it allowed me to get a little more immersed in this than I would for you know other horror movies. That's interesting, because I was actually going to say one of the things that I really enjoy about this movie is the relatively practical nature of everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, because in in theory, this is a group of scientists plus staff. So, you know, like you got some guys who are just there to work the kitchen, and uh, you got Kurt Russell, who's just a fucking pilot. Uh, but in, in theory, this is, this is a group of skilled people you know like educated skilled people and i i found most of their decision making to be as rational as one could expect given the circumstances where did you find you had to uh suspend your disbelief uh with all the little things just like like you wow excuse me hold on uh something it just came back to bite me caught my throat um you're right the decision making process was something that I agree that it was, it made sense. Everything they did was, you know, there was nobody running out in the dark by themselves, you know, trying to run away or nothing that was detrimental to the group. I thought that was very believable. It was just a bunch of little ticky tack things that just didn't really make sense that were just kind of like, okay, that's a convenient thing to happen. Like the first scene, we'll start from the beginning. First point. Sure. Um, when the two Swedish Nordic dudes are in a helicopter, they land, the one guy takes off shooting after the dog. As is, that doesn't make any fucking sense. But, you know, throughout the movie, you learn why they are doing what they're doing. The guy drops a thermite grenade. Okay, it happens. (laughs) You're wearing gloves. And the other dude just comes over and starts, like, throwing snow on it. Yeah, that, I I didn't get that. (laughs) And it's like, yeah. all right, thermite was designed, I think, in World War II to literally melt through the steel and the iron in, you know, in ships and in heavy artillery. And it can literally melt steel beams. That three inches of snow you just piled on is not going to do anything. <laughs> um, and then, you know, immediately it was like, oh, well, you know, if that explodes, the helicopter's not going to explode like that, whatever. And then I was, realized oh there is a box of thermite grenades in there that's actually probably how that would go and that was the point where i was like all right i just need to sit back relax stop being an asshole and just watch and enjoy the movie 
Yeah, that's um, an interesting detail. I did not know that about Thermite. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, Thermite's really Which only cool makes that it. um only makes that scene. I mean, it's if you don't know that that's what Thermite is, like me, about two minutes ago, it's already fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that really uh, just tacks onto the stupidity. Um, and then immediately after that dude gets shot by the Swedish dude, and it looks like like he acts like he just tripped and fell and like twisted his ankle. Like, no scream, no pain, whatever. It's just like, hey, dude, you okay? It's like, yeah, I'm fine, man. It's no big deal. But then the doctor did say, "You're, you, you'll, it barely grazed you. You got four stitches. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, still. That, it's not exactly a, a painless experience. But I mean, again, it's, yeah, it's one right. of those things where you just got to have that suspension of disbelief and just have a good time watching it. Which you're right is going to be the case for every film. But what I do like about this, like you said, there's nothing outlandish in it. It's um, there's like you said, there's no one running out into the street. If if there's ever an accusation laid against another crew member, um, it is always with some level of truth behind it. Like when they accuse um, the one older kind of Irishy sounding guy about fucking with the blood because he was like the only one that had access to it. Like yes, that is a logical and sensible mm-hmm. reason to accuse someone of being a shapeshifter. Um, the only, let me ask you this though, because there is one scene I actually, I, I didn't get when I was uh, younger um, and I still didn't get today. Um, or I guess as of today, when the thing by form of dog is put into the dog kennel with the other dogs mm-hmm. and then it eats a dog to, for, to what gain? Because it's already a dog. It doesn't need to assume the shape of another dog because it already is that dog. I or does it, assume, is it trying to multiply? I assume it was either trying to just make itself larger. It was hungry or it was just a narrative way to like express how this thing attacks people. Um... Any one of those, I'd be fine with. Like, okay, it needs to eat to have energy and keep going. Sure, whatever. It needs to get bigger in size, and it does that by gaining mass. Sure, that makes sense. Okay, they're just telling us how this thing's going to attack people later on. Sure, I can accept that as narrative storytelling. Um, I I didn't notice it specifically when it happened. Is what it is. I don't think... uh, you know, compared to some other stuff, that's really that big of a deal. I feel you. There's really so, only one other scene that bothered me with the lack of logic that involves. Um, so the doctor, you know, Wilfred Brimley's character does the autopsy and he's like, a single drop of blood would be enough to take over uh, an organism. Okay, that's fine. We're getting that information. It's presenting it to us. And then later on, I forget which character it was that is taken over, but it's it's when they have everyone tied up, the thing escapes into the snow after being set on fire, and it yes. just basically collapses in the snow, burning alive. Right. That seems like, you know, we've already seen that fire is what kills this thing. That is the most effective way of stopping it. That's all they needed to do. And then he throws a stick of dynamite, and just obliterates the thing. Yep. <laughs> and like watching it, I was like, you basically just sent those individual particles that could infect any organism 
fucking everywhere. You vaporized it. You atomized it. You you definitely had to have breathed some of that in, gotten that some uh, on you somewhere. It was just like, ah, that's just long term. That doesn't seem like a great option for you. But other than that, I'm fine with everything else. <laughs> so speaking of the of uh, of the flamethrower, real quick, um, they go to that right away. Yeah. Like immediately. <laughs> I mean, um, to be fair, if you got it, that's probably the first thing that's going to come to my mind. You know. Well, that's what I was going to say. How how quickly would you jump to? Oh fuck, we need the flamethrower. Uh, I have to admit, my first thought would be, okay, grab one of the shotguns we know everyone has. But the main character Mac had one already, so it's like, yeah, all right. What's uh? What's the only thing bigger than a shotgun that we have in an Antarctica research station? Fucking World War Two era flamethrowers. All right, let's put those to use. Which I is feel, such a. I ball. feel like that's very much along the logical lines that I would have used. I mean, it's 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 just interesting because typically in horror movies, they, there's always like um, not always, but anytime there's like a creature feature, there's usually one scene where it's like, all right. How do we kill it? You know, in um, in the Night of the Living Dead, there's a a radio broadcast or a television broadcast where it's like you have to um, shoot or dismember the head or something like that, right? And with a lot of these, there's like a dialogue about it about what's how do we kill this thing? And with them, it was just like nope, flamethrower, which I love. Don't get me wrong. It's a, and that's one of the things I guess one of that's one of the things I'm getting at is this movie moves pretty quickly, all things considered. Oh, yeah. Um, it was excellent. Yeah, it it is wonderful in terms of storytelling because it really gets straight to the point. Um, there's no dilly dallying. There is like zero exposition um, outside of what's absolutely necessary, and the rest of it is the film truly just kind of unfolding um, as madness deepens within this Antarctic camp. Which God, I love so much, especially in a movie that is surface level like a horror movie. Because it doesn't need to. I don't care about like the more dramatic points that this that this film could be making. I am here for like a a single expression of a, of of feeling, which is general. More generally speaking, I guess um, low level terror and um, seeing things get beaten up and exploded. And it does yeah, that. It, it does that very well. Yeah. Um. I wasn't expecting the level of gore that it has. Oh yeah. Um, I watched this during lunchtime and you know, there was a natural breaking point. I went and got my lunch out of the kitchen, came back to my room, sat down, and started eating it. Uh, and then they started the autopsy scene where they bring the thing back from the Nordic camp. Oh my God, that ruined my appetite <laughs> so quick. I, have never been someone to like be queasy around gore or blood or anything like that. And I've never, you know, had my appetite ruined before watching something. And if it, it was a weird feeling, it was like this, I can't put this piece of chicken in my mouth without thinking of that <laughs> disgusting blobby dead mutilated flesh. Hmm. This chicken sucks. <laughs> Funny enough that, total kind of an aside that one of the things i was thinking about during that is how much i loved that they just accepted that this was an alien oh yeah that's another scene i 
cannot stand in movies um yeah. horror thriller creature whatever where they're like what is this thing oh it can't no it can't be an alien that's crazy and they're just like nope this shit's an alien and they're all like yep what do we do next and god damn it i love that so much i wish i wish i paid note to like how logical they were in essentially every step throughout this movie because that's a great point like damn like they literally are just like all right these are the facts in front of us this is the information we have okay let's move forward seriously and that's that's the thing that i i definitely didn't fully get when i was younger because i first watched this movie when i was 12 um yeah yeah it was a it was a rough day that was um but you know one of the things you don't pick up on upon first viewing especially as a youngin uh but like seriously like they're so scientific about the whole process they have um they're trying to think about the best way for detection uh it could be used for blood all right we need other blood uh as like a control so we can put everyone's blood in that blood to see how it reacts oh shit the blood got destroyed because whoever is acting currently as the thing thought of that also logical next step for detection and removed it as a possibility. Um, it must've been the guy that fucking yes, but I, I'm so bad with names. I, I can't think of everyone's names, but yes, they did reveal not like who that was per se, but like the next guy that was the thing was the guy that did that. Um, The the guy the the scientisty guy uh, uh, Wilford Brimley he he like ran the analysis to see how fast it would take for the world to get infected if one person got out, um, which was a hilarious looking program. That computer program, man, that just that took me so out of it. Just like oh my god, it was so funny. (laughs) It's like that is such a 1982 thing to have in a movie. I felt like I was watching Matthew Broderick in War Games. Ah, I know. How about, like, yeah, of course it would respond with very specific details operating on the most basic OS possible. And he didn't even put in like any science or math. It was just like how long <laughs> he just he just asked it a question. <laughs> oh, oh it was so good. Yeah, uh, like the way they got information just kind of was like it seemed like a gimme. Like he did the autopsy and it's like, oh, well, this is this. This is what it does. This is, you know, all the information we have off of, you know, a doctor that's stationed in Antarctica who cannot be an expert in this field uh, in any way, but is very good at doing autopsies and is very quick to find conclusions about what it is, how it does it, and all that. But again, so- it's a horror movie. It, you know, the bar is not very high. It's not, and that's one of the things I I, I love about uh, a good horror movie is the bar is so low. It really doesn't need to be a very good movie for you to enjoy it. Um, and actually, I want to speak to this as a horror movie because it has all like the creature feature aspects of like a very traditional horror movie. Something you expect out of you know the fifties or so. Which this is actually a remake of a film that I believe came out in the fifties. Uh, the nineteen eighty two version of the thing is not the original um although it's the best known for good reason um but it's not like there's like there's zero jump scares in this movie really um there's anything one. i th- are you talking about the, bl- the blood scene uh i was talking about the the guy's stomach opening up and oh yeah eating the arms off the doctor that was the only true scare i had in the movie 
Yeah, because the rest of it's just like general fear. Mm-hmm. I have a note on that scene. It is Go for it. just such a misdirection. You know, you have the guy uh, picking up the scalpel, you know, cuts back and forth between him and Mac. You know, you expect that to be the jump. You know, you're expecting a jump of him to just attack. And then out of nowhere, it's just a basic cutaway of this guy's stomach that just turns into this Dark Souls mimic chest looking motherfucker that just devours this dude. Uh, And that was the only time I was like, oh, shit, like my heart just jumped. Oh, it's it's a. And then the ensuing um, mayhem that follows is also equally brilliant. But yeah, that's a very good. um, I guess that is. The, like the one, it's tough because like I don't, I know all the moves of this film. I've seen it so many times because again, yeah. I first watched it when I was twelve, which is too young. Um, but that's a wonderful scene. Um, where the fuck was I going? God damn it! Yeah. Oh, so I almost—it's almost more of like a thriller whodunit in a lot of ways because it's got all like the clue-like aspects of the whodunit in that there's accusations being tossed around about who is this thing who who basically who did it you know who had the the um the means who was left alone who would have the motives things like like to 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 fuck with all the shit things like this um and i was wondering what you would think about this film as like uh a fearful whodunit rather than a strict horror film um, that's actually, it's interesting because the first film I thought of, you know, mentally comparing how this, you know, goes about telling its story was Knives Out. Oh, um, okay. Actual whodunit. Um, and I, I would enjoy that. I think this would be a, a pretty cool way to go about telling that story. It would be a good enough, um, you know, suspenseful enough to actually have uh, a very similar, cli- I don't want to say climax, but a, v- a very similar conclusion that viewers would come about, a very similar feeling that would it would create. Um, you know, if it wasn't so focused in horror, I think it would do a good job of that. Oh, I'm happy to hear it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of... Um, I guess horror movies that have horror as the backing, not the the front. Like, if there's a better plot to the movie than just the horror aspect of it, I think it will be a better movie. Because if you focus solely on being scary, you end up with, like, Saw 3, which is not good. Um, as compared to Saw 1, which is actually a good movie, to in some respects. Because there's a plot, there's a tangible plot that it follows, and then there's just freaky shit going on. You know, same thing with this. There's a there's an actual plot, and if you take away all the horror aspect of it, all the gore and everything, there's still that very tangible, real plot. There just happens to be freaky shit going on along the way, which is yeah. really cool. Sorry, uh, I agree with that immensely. Just because I feel like if you're watching a movie that's just horror and nothing else you are expecting it to happen every time. And there's no point where you let your guard down. But if you watch something like this, that is, you know, based in horror, but at its core is another murder mystery. 
you let your guard down, you know, you, you start looking for other things. You're not just focused on where's the next jump going to be. Who's the next, when's the next time the thing's going to show up. And it ends up being much more effective as a horror film because it's not solely focused on that. Exactly. It's a lot like, um, uh, alien, the, 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 another great sci-fi 1980s, I guess alien came out this late seventies um horror film where again there's like a there's an actual plot that runs its course during the length of the horror movie instead of it just being look out them spooks um them sure is spooky so anyway <laughs> that's what fi- final thing on on the film before we wrap up the discussion of it unless you have more things to say keith david um at the end of the film walks out of like the fire and rubble after um uh kurt russell burned the place to the ground and it's left on this kind of ambiguous note of is keith david the thing uh him and kurt russell kind of just collapse next to each other sit down are rather amiable and they both acknowledge that they're pretty worn and beaten if one of them is the thing there's nothing that they can presently do about it um what do you think of this cliffhanger do you are you of the opinion that Keith David ended up being, uh, or would have been one of the things or, uh, or do you think that he was, uh, all clear? Um, I think he was in the all clear. I feel like, again, because so much of this is based in basic logic and, you know, it's not anything that is outside reality. Um, I think that there's no reason for him not to... Well, I guess if he kept continuing to pretend to be the thing with another human there, when they did get rescued, it would be more believable that he would. Oh, shit. Now I am... Now I don't know. I've cast doubt in my own mind. Yeah, I mean, which is, I guess, like, the point. Um, Yeah. Fuck. Because when I was a kid... I remember being like, oh, he has a friend. They both made it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, watching it as a, an adult, I can't help but think, no, nah, that man needs to be dead. <laughs> Honestly, um, if I was Kurt yeah. Russell, I might just like kill um, Keith David and then myself just to like be super sure. See, I thought about that too, and I thought that might be where things are heading. Like Keith David, not Keith David, uh, Kurt Russell sacrifices himself to ensure that it's truly gone. Um, but at the same time, if there's no one left alive, there's no one to really extend to the rest of the world. You know, tell their story. Uh, you know, what happened here? Why we need to be worried about this thing? What are the the rules of this monster, whatever it may be? Um, which so is I, funny because Kurt Russell did make that like that tape, but I'm very sure that got burned down in the fire. He also said, "Yeah, for real." Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that it ended on an open-ended note, and that they didn't just use that to make a sequel or four, a la Aliens. True, very true. Uh, what are some other points that you had about this? Um, I s- noticed this early on. And I don't know why, because it's not something I've really like. It's not something I've read about recently or looked into recently for like why it would be on the top, the forefront of my mind. But are you familiar with Chekhov's gun? 
Yes. So for those of you that don't know, if someone, you know, shows themselves having a gun in a film or a play, or, you know, it's written into the story that this guy has a gun, there's no reason to do that unless it comes into play later. So if you see some interesting artifact or interesting plot point that's brought up, it's going to be used later on. And I saw that so often to start out this movie. Um, the dog, obviously, like, I, I don't, I want to say this first because it is more than just a Chekhov's gun. It's a major plot point that the dog is the thing. But it's very clear from the start that the dog is a big part of it. You know, from the oh, opening yeah. scene, it's right there. Um, the thermite grenades, I... So I wrote these down as I saw them, and I, some of them ended up being actual Chekhov's guns, some weren't. So I thought the box of thermite grenades was going to be how they ended up defeating the thing. That ended up just being some shit they had in their helicopter, and that was it. Maybe you could say that you know, it led to them using the fire or whatever it may be. I don't know, but that's not exactly a, a, a focal point. Um, the captain's pistol that he has that becomes a plot point later on the Norwegian papers they use that later on to determine some shit um, Mac playing chess early on showed that he was the guy to be able to think ahead and do all that um, the dirty underwear that the guy complains about um, being left in the kitchen that is a major plot point and then another one that burned me the roller skates that the chef wears. I thought that was going to be used in such a cool way later on, like him escaping <laughs> or him going down the hallways and getting chased down by the thing. I thought I was a, you know, I thought I was on top of it when I saw him skating around on those roller skates, but apparently the dude just likes to skate. Dude, I'm now genuinely <laughs> upset that we didn't get a really cool hallway chase scene in roller skates cuz that actually would be really cool. Right, like I thought that was going to be the perfect cheesy '80s horror movie, like almost cliche that we were going to have, and it just—I uh, forgot about it by the end of the movie. I just got reminded by reading through those notes. Uh, oh well. And do you have any others? Nope. I don't think um, so. I said I, that without I, actually checking my notes. Oh. <laughs> um, I. Go no. All right. Go I was going to say I. Uh, I love. The scene of Kurt Russell destroying the video game machine in the beginning. Um, and it's definitely, uh, you know, I, I, I love my, my analogies and symbolism. And it's definitely a, a, a uh, analogy for how this movie is going to go, where the thing, the computer won. But Kurt Russell still won in the end. <laughs> By just fucking destroying it. He won in his way. And the thing almost certainly wins the battle of strategy in this film it's taking all the pieces one by one leaving kurt russell pretty alone here to defend uh defend his board and then he does the fire equivalent <laughs> of pouring whiskey down the computer game slot thing um by burning the entire building and hopefully the thing up with it um i I really wish I noticed that symbolism. I was too distracted by my just pure madness that he would be destroying such an expensive computer because he lost a program that's 
designed to beat you in chess. Well, that so that's but the other thing I was gonna I was gonna bring up is that not only must that computer have been very expensive, but it's also one of the seemingly very very limited activities you can do in Antarctica. Why would you destroy it? It's seriously probably one of like the four things you can do down there. Like they were just talking about how like it's the first day of winter, whatever it may be, like the first whatever. Like it's very early into their season. They're not getting anyone back until spring. They're probably very early into this shift and he's destroying the fucking computer. What the fuck is wrong with you, Kurt Russell? Because he's a bad boy. He's a pilot. No, he's a cowboy. The cowboy hat he wears. I chuckled so hard at that. Oh, it's There's so cheesy. No reason for him to have that hat. It definitely does not fit the climate he is in. It really doesn't even express all that much about his character. But goddamn, he wears a ridiculous cowboy hat for one scene. Where is that Chekhov's gun? Am I right? <laughs> Where's that yeehaw? Uh, anyway. I am, motherfucker. Uh, any any other final thoughts on 1982's The Thing? Nope. All right. Well, give me a give me a rating. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie um, for what it was, but at the same time, it it didn't really hit home with me. It was never anything over the top. It was enjoyable, but it didn't leave any lasting memories in my head, or you know, it didn't have any. You know, by design, any uh, narrative plot points that left me thinking at the end. But there were some little things I didn't like. It just was what it was. Enjoyable, but nothing else. So three and a half stars. Oh, uh, yeah, that's actually right about what I was going to give it to. I mean, this is horror movie is such a weirder genre to discuss like the rating and reviewing of because Mm -hmm. a really really good horror movie is still just like a decent movie because the bar is just so low i mean oh my god like it's think about how how often we get uh action movies nominated for academy awards which which we do with like you know something of a frequency you get a few here and there argo was the first one that came to mind um drama a ton um musicals a ton right horror not really because it it's like the only horror movie i can think of off the top of my head that got a best picture nominee nomination was um the exorcist and that movie's fucking amazing. Especially when you're talking about it being a horror movie. Because again, the field is just so bad. <laughs> so many edgy bullshit filmmakers in the world of horror that just make terrible, terrible content. So I I thoroughly enjoy this movie. If you like horror movie, this is an absolute classic. If you like 80s movies, if you like action, like like this is this is a fun movie. It's not a great movie. It's a really fun movie, and it did what it was trying to do very well. I will also give it three and a half. Yeah, it's one of those things where compared to normal films, this isn't anything spectacular. Um, compared to horror films, it's good. It's not great. You know, it's not. Um, it's not something like Get Out. It's not Jaws. But at the end of the day, it's. 
I don't have any glaring complaints about this. I thought this was a well-done horror movie, so three and a half seems like a nice soft spot for that. Totally, totally fair. All right, then let's move it on to a vastly different movie. <laughs> let's talk about 1989's Do the Right Thing. Let me pull up my facts and features about that. All right, Do the Right Thing, 1989, written and directed by Spike Lee. It stars Danny Aiello, uh, Ossie Davis, Ruby D, as well as uh, appearances from Spike Lee himself as a major uh, actor in this uh, film. Samuel L. Jackson has a small but very fun part in this movie. Um, Richard Edson, John Turturro, also uh, highly featured in this. It had an estimated budget of uh, $6.5 million. Its cumulative worldwide gross was $37.3 million, so very much so a success, um, a big hit. It is, um, a, for a general overarching plot, it is uh, a hot day in Bed-Stuy, which is, uh, at this point in time, a rougher neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh, nowadays, it's a very expensive neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, I was just there like a few months ago, and holy shit. Uh, it's it's not nothing like it is in the movie uh, anymore, um, and uh, it is just a backdrop for what it's like to have a largely diverse group of people living in the same space, uh, trying to handle each other's cultural differences um, while navigating a really really hot day. Corbin, what'd you think of this movie? Um, I'll get my opinion of this movie out of the way first. I think this is one of the best films ever created. I think it is perfect. I think the tone it sets, the the points it tries to make about racism, tolerance, violence is um is beautifully curated by Spike Lee. I I think this is a much watched film. Uh, especially nowadays, um, I, I don't have any complaints that I'm going to bring up about this movie. Um, so don't expect me to nitpick anything. Yeah, I so I haven't seen this movie in a few years, um, just because I remember it being, you know, it's 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 heavy. It's not light, um, and it's somehow even better than I remember. It is handled with such brilliance and nuance because the thing, the thing I love about this movie that I, I really, really uh, got to understand as I was watching it for the second, uh, most recently, I should say last night is how everyone's position on everything is completely understandable. Yeah. And the, the differences between them are really just of the culture or of the time. Like, Danny Aiello's character wanting Italian Americans up on his uh, Hall of Fame wall is, yeah, I mean, I get it. Like, you are Italian American and you uh, run and own and operate an Italian American food business, and that's how you want to feel represented. And then you also definitely, I totally understand Bugging Out's perspective, though, of man, everyone here is black. Like, this is a black neighborhood, black people are spending money at your business you should represent the people like, like your consumer base. Like I want to be represented in the places I eat. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand that position too. That is a very, now it might not be presented in the world's most reasonable way because bugging out's character is pretty audacious as a person, but the position itself, I, I do at its core very much so appreciate. 
And that goes for like every single part of this film. Mm -hmm. I will say, I think of all the characters that, you know, I'll say all but one character presents themselves as having very understandable points of view and everything. Bugging out, man. Giancarlo Esposito. That guy is such a piece of shit. Not Giancarlo <laughs> Esposito. The character bugging yeah. out. At no point during that movie do I think, I agree with you. I'm on your side. At the end of the day, he freaks out about you know not having guys like Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or Michael Jordan on the wall of this Italian-owned, Italian-operated Italian restaurant. At the end of the day, I've never walked into a Chinese restaurant expecting to see um, Michael Phelps on the wall. That's just, I don't know where that expectation would come from. Um, but at the same time, I know why this character is in there, why this character has the opinions that he does, why he has the point of view that he does. And I fully understand that uh, Brooklyn in. 1989 is a very, very more racially tense place in the world than the pure white town that we both grew up in, um, in 2020. So, well, I can't say I can empathize with the character or, you know, and I can't embody what he's going through. And I just, guys, a piece of shit. Like the the part that gets me the most about him is the scene where he's standing on the street and the guy wearing the Larry Bird jersey is walking his bike next to him, aka uh, the symbol of gentrification. Yep. Sorry, bumps into him, scuffs his Jordan Three retros. Well, I guess they weren't retros at the time. Uh, <laughs> Jordan uh, Three currents. Uh, actually, I wrote it down. They're Jordan Fours. Actually, I had to double check because I didn't want to fuck up with the sneaker heads around here. You know how it be. Um, at no point does his bike or the feet of the guy wearing the Larry Bird jersey scuff the shoes uh, in the area that is marked in the movie. So it's either a continuity error that you know Spike Lee overlooked, or much more likely just shows that it was already scuffed and was already there, but because the guy bumped into him and because he most likely is white wearing a Larry Bird jersey, that aggravation, that, you know, um, stereotype comes out and uh, causes that entire section to kick off. Uh, one of the funniest lines, or at least moments or reactions of the film happening there too, where the guy with the uh, um, bugging out was like, what the fuck you even moved to my neighborhood for? And the guy was like, I was born in Brooklyn. And everyone was like, oh, <laughs> Which, oh my god, yeah, I hate you for that. <laughs> um, I yeah. love that, how that how this movie does that. Just com beautifully blends uh, some really great humor with such a serious topic. Um, I know it's something that's, you know, kind of commonplace and it's kind of expected for serious movies to have this comedic relief, but I think this specifically is uh, very, very well done. Stands out with how well it is. What do you think about, um, there's so much to dissect with this movie, which mm -hmm. is one of the things I just love about a really well-made film. Um, just while we're on the subject of bugging out, what would you think about him versus Smiley in terms of um, a Malcolm X character versus 
a Martin Luther King Jr. character. Because you have Smiley here who who is still is trying to also convey um the 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 feeling of 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 blackness and of of being proud of who you are as black people in America. But he's he's very docile and passive. And I'm not just say trying to say that Martin Luther King Jr. was was in that are way, you, but what? Are you uh talking about the mayor or Smiley? The Smiley selling the pictures. Smiley, the guy selling the pictures. Okay. Um, and it's, and it's, so not to say that Martin King Jr. of himself was was like that character, but in reference to or in juxtaposition to who Martin uh, Malcolm X was, which was the much more aggressive, more aggressive of the two, these two kind of play, at least how I, I kind of read it on, in this watch, those kind of roles. Like they're both advocating for similar points. They're both advocating for again blackness in um america at the time and, and particularly in bedsty uh but they have two very very different methodologies of doing it they ultimately do get together at the end because they're still trying to make the same point um which i think also speaks well to the malcolm x martin Luther King jr um parallel but their their ways of doing it and then how they're thusly treated are um i i think may in some respect represent that dynamic what do you think see i i can see the connection with bugging out and malcolm x i that was something i saw and made note of but i viewed de mayor as the martin luther king character compared to smiley because smiley at the end does get involved with the violence you know he is in there he's spitting he starts the fire he puts the picture up on the wall um he's he's right at the forefront of the violent acts that happen at the end of the movie whereas the mayor's preaching nonviolence throughout he's the one that is breaking up the fights he's the voice of reason he's still pushing for that you know black empowerment but in more of a, a Martin Luther Martin Luther King Jr uh methodology compared to Smiley um, I also didn't, th I didn't think Smiley was black. I thought he was white. Um, <laughs> and at the end, after the fire, when he puts the picture on the wall, I thought that the dirt and the grime that covered his face was more of a, a symbolism towards him assimilating, uh, showing more of his true feelings, his true color to you know, put it so bluntly. Um, but I guess that's a, a whole different point to make. Uh, yeah, but if that was true, uh, that'd be a great pickup by you. Uh, what? I like that. I like that. Work? Yeah. Yeah. If that was true, the, the whole, uh, symbolism you found there at the end would have been wonderful. Um, no. Ah, so in regards to the mayor, I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, I read the mayor as being, um, like, public or first impression perception of uh a lot of i don't, don't want to say it's it's even strictly a black thing but obviously in this movie they 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 it, it's more centered around that a perception of how black people can be viewed especially in new york um by the public versus how they really are because on at first glance and in a lot of realities as he is demare is a, a drunk and a homeless person and all that but Throughout the course of the film, you see he's a really sweet person. He cares a lot 
about the people in his neighborhood and he cares a lot about their success. He cares a lot about um, he, he is a rather noble person who he, you know, at some point in the time, maybe a system failed him or he ran into tough luck, but he's even, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say well-respected, but he's well-known and people seem amiable towards him. Um, I took it as being like a, uh, don't judge a book by its cover kind of guy, but I, I like the parallel you're making there too. What do you think of um, the sub story between Demare and Mother Sister, aka this film's version of a Tennessee Williams play? Um, it was weird throughout. I I never really cared much for uh, Mother Sister, uh, especially at the end. You know, she was someone that was. This was only the second time I've seen this, uh, and it's like you, it's been a few years, uh, and she was not a character I even remembered um, when I first went into this. The end scene with the fire um, really shows to me her true character, where she's she's screaming for the advocation of violence against you know Sal and the pizzeria until the fire started and the flames start to take her, what I assume is her brownstone, her apartment, and she just completely breaks down and starts sobbing to the point where she has to be comforted by the mayor, um, who he then, you know, fucks. Um, and I just, I thought that was very representative of, you know, the hypocritical nature of some people towards violence where they're fine of they're fine with it being a tool used to advocate and to accomplish their mission of racial equality and racial justice until they become involved directly until they see it being shot back right at them um so i think justly i am i am not a fan of her character uh i I like that those type of people. I've always been very fond of those type of like soft spoken how is everything you say feel like prose type of people. Um the mayor, great people to talk to. Mother sister. Mother sister. Um okay. as a character, she's clearly just there to be symbolic of something. Um I'm not a hundred percent sure of what, because it feels like there's a lot of characters that cover a lot of ground here. And I'm not sure what her character is doing in particular. I find her a very comforting voice. Um, and I love that, like, again, that very, like, Tennessee Williams smoky way of speaking. Um, and seriously, the film, like, basically becomes a streetcar named Desire every time she's on the screen. It's insane. Um, but, yeah, she's a character I kind of forgot about as well up until she came on screen. Um, but I, so I, I, I guess just to sum up, I like the character. I don't know what she does for the film, but I like the character. Um, what do you think? Let, let's get into some of the, the people in this in this film. What do you think of Samuel Jackson um, in this movie? Um, I'm a fan. You know, one, because the character, like you said earlier, is just so much fun. Uh, just so much energy. Just very well executed. Um, I I like the framing of every time we see him, he's kind of just right above the love sign uh, outside his window, uh, and I think that's 
kind of what he preaches in his radio shows. I, I don't know what the terminology is. Um, I didn't really think too deeply into what his symbolism is, what his role is there, uh, just because I was so focused on the other characters. You know, he's never really the forefront of any major scenes um, up until the end, really. So it was it was hard to really break down that. Not even hard. I just I, I didn't. Yeah, he's kind of just like uh, he. First off, he's wonderful in every single scene he has. Um, he serves as like a nice backbeat for the movie. You know, he's oftentimes present even when he's not there because he is a radio host. So sometimes you'll just hear his voice on the radio. Um, and he definitely, I think, is there to serve as a vocalization of the tone of the film at the various points at which it's happening. Mm -hmm. He's shouting when things are tense and he's calm when things are calm. He's there to share pieces of information like like the heat, but it's not really important. Um, You hear that from other people. I think he's just there to be a backdrop for the general emotional sense, but God damn it. Is he great in this? Um, What do you think? of Martin Lawrence in this film, who I completely forgot was in this. Yeah, so did I. Um, my first reaction to Martin Lawrence was, is does he have a lisp in this? Like, is he... And then once I figured out that, yeah, he does, it was, it was one of those things. But, like, the four people, uh, I don't remember all of the character names or if they were even expressed, but the three dudes and the girl that are all together throughout and then they finally are the ones that come in and keep cells open at the end of the film, the climax of the film. Um, man, they're assholes. They are just dickish throughout this entire movie. Um, and you know, they're a, a roving band of hooligans in the most basic form, uh, way to describe that. And it's just one of those things where I get why they're there. I get what they do narratively. Um, It's just one of those things, again, like they're characters that I was not innately focused on while watching this up until the end of the movie. Yeah, they're definitely... um, It's tough because I want to say that they're having fun and that Mm -hmm. makes it sound kind of innocent. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Uh, They get in... they say to the other characters and what they do is it's aggressive yeah they're they're pretty aggressive they but i also like i know those people Mm -hmm. you know they they are an accurate representation of the characters that they're trying to portray which is dudes who are loud yeah (laughs) um really what do you i'm just going to run through some of the other characters and I'll, i'll get to some of the the bigger ones as we run through what do you think of rosie perez in her first role I remember her being a bigger character in this movie the last time I watched her, the first time so I watched her. So do I. <laughs> Why um, is that? <laughs> she's really only in like a small handful of scenes and the opening credits, which I did note. The opening credits are ridiculous, and I love them. Oh, I love them so much. Um, I did not remember them in the slightest, and it's just so unique and just... I. I, I I'm at loss for what the right word is, but like you can't take your eyes off them. Mostly because no, not for of a second. provocative she's dancing, but like what is even going on here? I love it. I yeah, I think her character is effective. She really 
is pretty one dimensional um, in most ways. She's she's just mad the entire movie. She's mad at yeah. her mother. She's mad at Mookie. She's mad because it's hot. Uh, but I I I love her in this film. I think she's great in her role. I feel like all of the Latinos portrayed in this are extremely one dimensional as just being loud and aggressive. Um, there's really no one of you know, Latino descent in this that is portrayed as anything but that. I mean, the dudes, you know, playing, sitting on the corner, uh, listening to their music are just loud and aggressive. Uh, you know, Rosie, her mom, loud and aggressive throughout. They don't really add much. And that's kind of, you know, I said I wasn't going to be nitpicky and complain about this movie because it's perfect, which still is. But uh, I would have liked to see some more development with that sect of the population in this well i'll do you one better um i i think everyone in this movie is an asshole um Um, outside of um veto i think everyone's wrong in most of the things that they do um and that's part of the point i because i don't think anyone's meant to be necessarily like the bad guy i think everyone's just realistic like Mookie seems like a really good dude, and if I knew Mookie as a person, I would probably want to hang out with that guy. But also, like, he doesn't really work very hard. He takes super long trips to go deliver pizzas, where he, like, goes to take showers at his sister's place and, like, goes to hang out with his baby mama. Like, he's wrong for doing that. Um, Danny Aiello, like, just wants to run the pizza shop. But at the same time, like... He is also super aggressive with the customers and says a lot of rather unsavory things near the end. Um, same thing as we were talking about earlier with bugging out. Like he has lots of decent points, but he's also like a jerk in the way he brings it up. Radio Rahim isn't really doing anything wrong by like blasting his radio, but at the same time, like you know, you can't just walk into businesses and blast radios like that. Like mm-hmm. everyone is wrong. I will everyone, say everyone. Everyone's everyone's complicated. I understand that Sal can be aggressive towards his customers, but at the same time, he is probably the one person that, while, you know, is portrayed as being in the wrong at the end, um, I definitely connected and sympathized with him by far the most. Um, Just because I feel like everything he did aggressively, everything he did um, that you could say was not the right thing was very clearly brought on by others being assholes to him. And I think of all the people that are doing just bad shit, his is the most understandable. I don't know. Like Radio Rahim is again, doesn't do anything wrong. It's just kind of an asshole customer. And as someone who has worked in the service industry for years, that drives me nuts and is just totally unacceptable in basic human society. Um, the way Bugging Out treats everyone else around him and is just so aggressive towards everyone else, not really acceptable in society. If customers are being fucking dicks in a restaurant and the owner says, don't do that, you can't do that here or you're going to have to leave, and then they keep doing that and then kicks those customers out, that's justified. Destroying a radio with a baseball bat is, you know, where I thought he drew the line or crossed the line, I should say. But at the same time, 
the tensions in that restaurant at that point in the movie are it's understandable how he got there the way he did um especially with the people that were encroaching his business in the way they were see that's one of the that's one of the things i struggle i think sal much like again much like i think of every character in this film is probably is is right in a lot of ways but i also think he he didn't do himself any favors he never really ingratiated himself to um the people he was serving really in any way outside of people he preferred like like jane like he absolutely like radio one of radio rahim's complaints about about sal later on was that like motherfucker asked me to turn my music off and didn't even say please and he's right i know does sal need to say please no it's his it's his business but at the same time like you immediately start yelling at the guy and that's not like great either like if radio rahim's wrong for playing the music that fucking loud in a business and trying to order food but sal's also wrong for like being an asshole about it like everyone's everyoneone's wrong and i'm i See, think i'll disagree with you there all right go i ahead. i think he does show that side to the that softer side and uh you know throughout the movie he's the voice of reason between him and pino or between the people and pino you know he gives smiley money he's nice to the mayor when he comes in gives him a dollar to go buy a beer He's nice to Mookie when he has every right to fire him for being an awful employee. He's nice to Jade. He's nice to the kids at the end who want to come in for a slice after they close. He's done nothing to anyone other than bugging out and Radio Rahim throughout the movie that would do anything to suggest that he is either racist or a piece of shit. Um, I mean, up until he drops an N-bomb. Right. But again, that's... I don't want to get there yet. I will say, you know, trying, bugging out, what was it? He he tried to, you know, get free food. He was complaining. He was yelling in the restaurant. He's asked to leave, or he's asked to stop, doesn't. And then when he doesn't, he's asked to leave, and then Mookie drags him out. Okay, that's, you know, sure, he could be a loudmouth, aggressive Italian man. That's fine. That's how it went. Not the greatest, but at the same time, fully justifiable with Raheem coming in. Yeah. He was a little aggressive, but sure that again, fully justifiable. I think he's earned the full benefit of the doubt through the community where even on the street, when bugging out's trying to start a protest, everyone says, are you fucking kidding me? Sal's is the best. Sal's a great guy. Sal's food is the best. It's a staple of the community. Um, I just, I get that the whole point is it's a hot day and it makes tensions run hot and really pushes things along. But I, I just disagree that Sal deserves what happened to him at the end. No, I, I would, I'm not going to say that. I definitely don't okay. think that that's too far. I, what I think Sal represents is most, uh, sorry. What I think he most effectively represents is, um, the, just aging out of his era. He he he's he's old. He is there to represent a, 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 the previous version of just the inhabitants of of that area. He is 
kind and respects the community because those things are timeless. But he is literally an old man complaining about music being too loud. Now, granted, probably right. <laughs> but like, that's where he and he has some. Uh, I don't know what, what I'm trying. What the, uh, oh, shit. He he he's got all the core values, I think, down. But he just hasn't, I'll say, kept up with the times in maybe the same way that the rest of the neighborhood has. And I don't think that makes him bad or or necessarily wrong in any of the things that he did. But I think that th- if this movie was to end a different way, and it was heading in that direction, um, Sal would be handing off the keys to, to Vito because he's like the younger version. He seems way more um, embedded in the society in terms of uh, the people that are living in that neighborhood now, uh, much more of a, of a community member with, with, with the younger, uh, with the younger crowd um, in terms of like actually hanging out with them a little bit. Uh, whereas I, Sal, I think is like a, a good staple of the community. I think he's just on the way out. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if I see it that way. I don't. Uh, it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, I disagree. I think that's you know wrong. It's just I, I viewed him more of I, I view my opinion on him based off of the color of his skin, and that's <laughs> it. Um, not that's it, but you know what I mean. Like that's I view him as being a white guy in a black neighborhood, and that's that. Um, I don't necessarily think his age has anything to do with it. I don't think his time spent in the community is it. It's just that's the way those things were. That's the way these tensions are felt and expressed. And I don't know. I will that's say, right. I think I think they gave him the short end of the stick when it comes to. I don't know how I want to say this, how I want to word this, but I mean, while I get that it's not anywhere close to the same level of struggles that the black community and the black culture have gone through through slavery throughout the years of their existence in this continent but you know i can't get up there and say that italian americans haven't been mistreated and been the subject of racism in their own right especially in new york city um and i think that's why they made them specifically italian you know, it's one of those things where they could be pretty much anything but Protestant English. And there's some level of racism. There's some level of um, stereotyping and racial divide there that I don't want to say is overlooked, but is definitely second fiddle to uh, the blacks and the Koreans expressed in the film. And uh, we'll definitely get to a little bit more of that. Uh later i want to close or not close i want to get to um mookie's character and uh and the police and then we can get to uh maybe the the final act of this film which i'm sure we'll have plenty to say about uh what do you think of mookie's character uh spike lee's character he's relatable he's understandable he's you know like you said earlier like He's a guy you and I would hang out with, you know, 100%. not a guy I would enjoy working with per se, but you get where he's coming from. You know, I don't agree with his work ethic or how he takes advantage of, you know, Sal's trust and Sal's patience with him. Um, the actions at the end where he throws the trash can through the window, or it's still 
up for debate, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. But you know, overall, it's it's uh, what's the term for it? It's he's a protagonist, but he's the he's the antihero, maybe. Okay, I can see that. Um, you know, he's the guy you're following the story in, and you're rooting for him. But at the same time, it's like, damn, that's it's not perfect. He's not close to it, and uh, it's it's just one of those guys. I love his character because I like again like this is this is a guy I know you know what I mean. Uh, first off, I love that he's wearing a Jackie Robinson jersey for the uh, vast duration of this film. Um, it works on a couple levels. One, oh yes. First off, this film is largely about race, and Jackie Robinson's the guy who broke the color barrier in baseball, so that's a pretty good one off the jump and then second and far less important the uh jack robinson played for the brooklyn dodgers and this film takes place in brooklyn uh not the los angeles dodgers he refused to move and opted to retire from baseball instead which i love um i will say my one complaint about this movie is that spike lee is not a great actor and i think constantly under delivers mookie's lines um to the point where it gets frustrating at times. That is, I my only real gripe with this film is that I wish it's tough because like I love seeing Spike Lee in this movie because I like Spike Lee and I just love seeing him do stuff. Um, if there's a clip of Spike Lee anywhere, I want to watch it because I love Spike Lee. But at the same time, this character could have been portrayed way better if it was an actual actor doing it. Um, if he had half as much energy in this movie as he does on the sidelines of a Knicks game, I think this movie would be a six out of ten. But he's just so monotone and just so flat throughout. You said six out of ten. I'm assuming you mean six out of five. Um, yep. But again, <laughs> but, not good at math. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I, I agree. It's tough because like I, I I'm struggling to think of what like the lines are in particular. But I remember there was this one scene where he was talking to. Um, Sal's character, and then he, or sorry, he was talking real quick to John Turturro's character, and then he really quick cuts back, talks, says something to Sal, and then cu- starts talking to John Turturro again. And he just kind of like walks through the lines, and it's such a shame because that would have been like a really good moment, but it gets lost in just the kind of blase delivery. But uh, to to the side, I, Mookie's put in such a tough position, and that's what I think makes him. Obviously, he's the focal point of the film. He's definitely garners probably the most screen time. It's close, but probably the most. Um, no, definitely the most. I'm changing my answer. Um, but he's he's constantly between a rock and a hard place throughout this entire film, and thus brings out the title "Do the Right Thing." Um, he's constantly quote unquote working, which is why he's struggling to because he needs to because he needs money because he's trying to support his baby mom and his kid but at the same time that has led to at least what we're led to believe based on his own telling um him not spending a lot of time with his baby mom or his kid because he's constantly out working and that makes that challenging he's treated as like the racial intermediary throughout this entire film which i can certainly understand as being frustrating because he's got sal and the italians sitting there telling him like get your friend out of here just because like he knows who bugging out is and maybe they are friends maybe they aren't they never really seem like friends outside of uh no they have like a couple of the scenes together i changed that answer too um but at the same time like 
Sal, you're the business owner. Like, get one of your sons to do it. Like, you're telling them this probably because they're both black. And, like, it's tough because Mookie is your employee. So that is also a logical thing to tell your employee. But at the same time, like, if it was an Italian dude, like, would you go tell Vito to do it? Like, that can be tough. And then it's like you got this whole thing where it's like, how much do you want to work for the white man if you're Mookie? You know, like, how much do you like being told what to do by a white guy just in general? You know, even if Sal was like the coolest dude on the fucking planet and had zero problems, which we've already discussed as being uh, mildly debatable, uh, it's still just in concept. Like, do you want to be that black guy, you know, who's working for the white man? Like, that that can be a challenging thing in of itself. Um, the fact that, like, he he doesn't work the hardest, but at the same time, like, he's a member of the community, and he wants to be a part of his community. And that leads to him being a relatively shitty employee, but like also leads to him being a decent community member. So like he's constantly caught between different things that are going to occupy the same space and having to choose between the two of them. It's a really tough position for him to constantly be in, which is why I really love his character. Yeah, I definitely agree that I wish it was a little better done, a little better performed. Um, it's just one of those things where even though it's again monotone I thought it was very flat it still comes across as a fantastic character who you understand a lot of emotions because it's a well written movie and it's a well acted movie outside of that but um, I think it definitely could have taken it over the top oh for sure yeah no you definitely still it is so well written right before we talk about the end I do want to uh make one other point real quick about the police um i think they favor no one in this film and i think that's a great point that the film makes is that the police uh in new york certainly do affect the black neighborhoods more than any other neighborhood but they universally suck um is the point this movie's trying to make like when the italian guy drives the um drives his, I think it was a Cadillac uh, convertible, down the street and gets hosed over by by uh, the black guys playing with the, the fire hydrant, mm-hmm. the police couldn't give less of a shit about, about it. Like, they, they don't give a flying fuck, you know? And it would have be if we're going strictly along, along racial lines because it's a white man and these are two white cops, this film could have very easily been like, alright, we're going to arrest the whole neighborhood. And it didn't, because they wanted to show that the police don't give a shit <laughs> and that's one of the things that leads to the end being as chaotic and haphazard as it is is that the police are antagonistic towards everyone they you know when they're driving past the the three black dudes just you know older black dudes just just sitting there chilling shooting the shit you know they drive real slow give them the stink eye and just go what a shame granted the black people do right back to them but it's a much different tone because one of them has all the authority of a man with a loaded gun and the legal right to have it and use it. And the other one is from the point of view of a disenfranchised group in a bad neighborhood. And that I think is just so key to what the events are of the, of the final act of the film, because it's true for, especially this time period, uh, the MYC cops motto might as well be fuck you. Yeah. My neighbor's a New York city cop. And, uh, yeah, he's uh he's a nice guy when he wants to be, but when he really wants to be. 
I know he's not going to listen to this. So I don't give a shit. <laughs> Fuck you, guy. Yeah, I won't say his name because that's mean. John yeah, Smith. I think it's also against the law, but oh well. Is it? Uh, is that considered doxing? Uh, uh, I don't think we have enough of an audience to really be taken seriously in that regard. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, so I guess that brings us to the final act of the film in which all hell breaks loose and the serious but presented in a usually comedic or quickly cuts to comedic line way that the film had presented itself thus far into the film immediately dissipates and it were thrust into a far darker tonally and somatically uh cinematographically uh shot several i don't know final acts a couple of scenes in which there is basically a riot resulting in the death of radio raheem and the burning down of sal's famous pizzeria um so what's what's your take on all of the events that unfolded um, here at the end of this film? Um, again, at, at the surface level, it's just the culmination of a extremely hot, extremely tense day that you know tempers got the best of reason um, of everyone involved, and it was just a perfect storm of everything coming together and again culminating in that way. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I know, I know Sal never deserved anywhere close to what had happened. Um, I will stand behind him in that regard, uh, compared to standing behind Bugging Out and Radio Raheem. The ending, it, it's hard because there's just so much going on. Um, the cops coming in the way they did and the way they acted against Radio Rahim and bugging out. I know that's what the crowd and uh, everyone involved focused on from that point on and wanted to lash out about, but I don't know how anyone uh, in the law or otherwise could come into that situation, see two men attacking, you know, a family of, you know, Sal's family attacking the pizzeria having an extremely large human being choking the other on like on his chest, sitting on his chest, choking him out, not relenting, not listening to orders or commands. And yeah, I guess you could definitely say that the use of force was justified, but overdone. Um, and I mean, that's clearly presented with how the two, two officers communicate with each other. And it's just one of those things where I don't, I don't know if it's meant to be a, the man. I I should have culminated my thoughts a little better. <laughs> don't worry about it. You culminated got it so much. Again, it's just one of those things where it's you can see both sides. You can see the reasoning of everyone involved, and there's no one inherently wrong there's no one inherently that's black and white clearly the bad guy clearly the antagonist here um everything that was done was justifiable you know mookie's a piece of shit for throwing the trash bin through the window you could argue that he took the presser off of sal and put it squarely on sal's restaurant and the physical aspect of it and not the person which 
could have saved his life. Who knows? We don't know how that would have gone. At the same time, he is basically putting the last nail in the coffin to them, destroying everything the man owned and held dear. Um, the way he comes back after the scene and you know demands money and is like, dude, I did you a favor. I kept you safe. I knew you were going to get the money back from insurance, whatever. Like That's callous and rude and whatever it may be. It's just... I don't know, man. I don't fucking know. So much. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's a whole other world of, of digestion that needs to happen here. So I, I guess to just I kind of move through it point by point. So Sal's closing up. The day's over. Finally got to go home. And uh, then you get the, the, the gang of four that, that want to... Uh, I shouldn't say gang. This is a movie about racial sensitivity. The, the group of four pals uh, come to the door and want to get a slice. And Sal being the stand-up guy he is, lets him in for a slice. And that leaves the little door open for uh, bugging out and... Radio Rahim to come in and make the demand, which is to have more black people on the walls and to be better represented in this institution, which is seen as a symbol of the community or staple of the community. Um, that then leads to a shouting match between Sal and Radio Rahim to try to get him to turn the stereo down. He doesn't. Sal breaks it with a bat. And that just leads to an all out brawl that gets brought into the street. Um, during the beginning of that brawl, uh, or at least during the beginning of that argument, um, Sal drops an N-bomb, which puts the four people who had walked into his restaurant, who were on his side previous in the film, uh, against him as it's now been made racial and they are black and Sal is white. So it led to that kind of divide. Um, this ends up being into uh, becoming just, like I said, it's a, just a really big fight. Uh, and that leads to Mookie's decision. And I always saw this as the question of the film. Did Mookie do the right thing That's by breaking the I have in mind too. Yeah. And cool as a fucking cucumber too. He just goes over. It's not even really clear what the fuck he's doing at first. Just kind of walks away from the crowd, goes and takes a lid off a trash can, takes the trash bag out, throws it to the side, lifts up the whole trash can, one of those old school like metal trash cans, probably like aluminum, and then just fucking chucks it through this through Sal's window. And there's so many reasons for why this could have happened. It could be that Mookie needed to take felt like he needed to take a side, you know? This whole movie he'd been doing what Sal had told him to do because he is Sal's employee. Uh, at the same time, like this has become a racial divide, and you know, Mookie's a black man in this neighborhood, and might want to feel as though he's more on that side of things uh, for a change. It also, at the same time, could be a way for him to end what's going on here by giving a big dramatic moment in which Sal would get recompensed for, since he does have insurance on the building, something Mookie knows, as you said. So it's tough. I. And also, he has his own frustrations, you know. Like, he, like I said earlier, he he's basically been like like the the racial in between for this entire film between the main white characters and the main black characters. It's which I'm sure is a situation he hates fucking being in. And at the end of the day, it all could come down to man, it was fucking hot that day, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Again, all this shit on a on a normal cooler day could have been some shit that like you complain to your friends about, or you complain to your girlfriend about. 
or you know you 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 let roll off your back in one way or the other. But when you add heat to it, man, it, it shit's tough, and emotions get high, and that can be a tough thing to navigate. You know, everyone can have an easy moment of weakness in the summer, uh, when 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 it's really like that. So. I still don't know which side of Mookie's decision I land on. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. It's one of those things where, you know, my first instinct deep down, it's like, Mookie, why the fuck did you do that? You know, surface level, it feels like he did the wrong thing. Um, but, I mean, you look at it, you see, all right, what were what were the other ways this was going to end up? What were the other ways that this situation was going to end? And... You know, if you look at it, if you don't take it out on the restaurant itself, if you don't distract the 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 riot that's going on, who's going to take the brunt of it other than Sal and his two sons? So, I, I you know, us, I preach about process over product, um, which is why I inherently think this was not doing the right thing. But at the same time, I don't know. It's tough. And I think that's the way it's meant to be. Um, I do want to point out something that Spike Lee said that, uh, you know, reading up on this, uh, he says that the only people that ever ask him whether or not Mookie did the right thing is white people. Blacks have never asked him that question. It's only uh, whites that say that. Um, and okay, let, me, let me find the right point, but... I don't know how accurate that is, that it's only that, but even if it is just a majority, I don't know. Like, I, I, What does that say to you in itself while I search for the rest of this quote? I mean, I think that makes sense. I think if you are taking this uh, film to show where Mookie has kind of been straddling this line racially, you can understand how... And I do very much understand how that could have very easily gotten to him. He he had a tough relationship with uh, Pino, I think John Turturro's character's name was. Like those two, he they had a whole conversation. Like there's also, by the way, just so much we have not gotten into, including John Turturro's character being like super racist, um, or like Radio Raheem's character at all. But that's just too much for for one for one day. Um, he he he's had a, a tough hostile work environment from that from the Pino character. He's had many disagreements with Sal. Uh, Vito seems like he's been a good dude, but he's so passive and just lets everything happen how his elders deem it's going to happen that it's not really a redeeming quality. I can certainly understand why if you know you just saw your boss call one of your community members um, the N-word and you're a black man in that situation, how that could immediately flip the switch for you and have you now be on the side of whatever's happening contrary to the person who just said that. So in that respect, yeah, man, I completely get it. It's a thing. Like We want to talk about rational decision-making like how we did in the thing, but it's tough because this is there's no room for it here. Because in real life, there isn't always room for it. And... In a more rational world, maybe Mookie doesn't break the window and he walks away and just just removes himself from the situation and comes at it the next day with a clear mind. But that's not a, that wasn't an option for him at the time in 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 this uh, in the circumstances. It's tough. 
Yeah, so Spike Lee has remarked that only white viewers ask him if Mookie did the right thing. Black viewers do not ask this question. Uh, he talks about this in the director's commentary and uh, a feature he did with the Criterion Collection. Um, Lee believes that the key point is that Mookie was angry at the wrongful death of Radio Rahim, and viewers who question the riot are explicitly failing to see the difference between damage to property and the death of a black man. Which, you know... It's hard to go against that, you know? It's a window. It's a restaurant. It's something that's insured, whereas a man died in front of them minutes before. A, a prominent member of their community, someone that everyone knew walking down the street, someone who, you know, one way or another carried respect with his name uh, and his presence. And it's hard not to look at that. And, you know, we're watching this where we're disconnected from what's going on in that street corner that night. Uh, we're not a part of that community. We're not feeling the emotions they're feeling. It's easier for us to look at this reasonably and say, okay, his death was, you know, to some degree caused by the actions he took himself, not the police came in, the police killed him, the police dragged him off, and here we are left standing with Sal and his sons on the street corner in the middle of the hottest night of the year. Um, but in reality... If we were there, if you know, you and I were on that corner, if we were part of that crowd, I think it would be real easy to take out that frustration, take out that emotion on some, you know, the catalyst that caused this whole thing. And further to the point, I think uh, Spike Lee does a really great job of, of again, even though he doesn't need to give it, giving Sal um, more of an emotional reasoning for for his own. Uh, diswrought nature at the end by that final scene where Sal's like, I built this with my hands. I can, you know, Mookie tells him you can get the money, and Sal's like, It's not about the money. Like, I built this. I put in every light bulb, every switch, every tile. It's my place. It has, it has sentiment, sentimental value to him. It has memories. There's, it's intangible. Um, and that's, again, a very understandable position to have. At the same time, Sal didn't kill Radio Rahim, but Sal killed Radio Rahim. And that's what's tough about the movie is like, you, you can't fully blame Sal for killing Radio Rahim because the police in New York are awful, uh, especially awful about taking care of the, uh, the black and Latino neighborhoods. But at the same time, you know that if the police come to your neighborhood, and you live in a black and Latino neighborhood, you're putting everyone's lives at a level of, of risk. And that's what the, that's the, everything's a rock and a hard place in this movie. That's one of the things that makes it so great. So what's, your, what's your reasoning behind Sal killing Sal being a factor behind? Well, I know he's a factor, but putting the blame on someone is different than being a factor. What's your reasoning for blaming Sal for Raheem's death? I'm not fully blaming him, but at the same time, as you can say, Radio Raheem's actions led to his eventual death because he walked into a store and was very, very aggressive, and that ultimately led to a fight in which the police got called. Sal was just as aggressive back, and both of them could have disengaged. And Sal's the one that escalated it. Sal's the one that busts out the baseball bat and starts actually engaging in, in, uh, in making the confrontation physical and threatening actual violence. And again, neither of them are wrong. It's Sal's place of business, and he can do it while not damaging other people's property. That's probably a line. 
He can do in it what he pleases. And Radio Raheem's not wrong outside of playing his music too loud and being aggressive in a store. But if you want to say that, and that's the other thing that makes it tough is the, the, the X factor that is the police in New York, um, especially in this time period. Um, but if anyone's, both of their actions lead to Radio Raheem's ultimate demise. And it's tough to parse out which one has more weight in that, uh, in, in bearing the, the brunt of that blame. Well, sir, I think you are expressly failing to see the difference between damage to property and the death of a Italian man. I mean, it's one thing to instigate the violence or to elevate the violence when he takes out the bat and smashes the radio. It's another to pull a man over a counter and then choke him out in the street uh, to the point where if the police didn't show up, I, there's no doubt in my mind Raheem was going to kill him. And I don't see how the destruction of one guy's property would immediately force the other to maybe not force, but to instigate him to killing the man. Uh, again, it, the the tough part is the actual killing of Rahim because it falls so squarely on the policeman's shoulders. Right. Um, and that, the, and and at the end it, of the day, only one of the two men did die. And yeah. This whole situation is meant to break this confusion and to bring this uncertainty along with it. And, and to show how perfect. difficult, like, here we are trying so hard to navigate this film, mm-hmm. um, which is very clear in the plot points that it lays before you, but has so much nuance in the characters and people and motivations involved that it really is murky. I mean, not even murky. It, it, it's, it's just tough to dissect. It, it, it just depends on where you view actions leading and how you view the, um, motivations and and uh motifs behind everyone's personalities and and the diverse nature of the neighborhood it's god i love this movie Mm -hmm. i I think it's a must watch for anyone who well no for everyone i think everyone should watch this movie um again we could sit here and talk more about it we could talk way more about this end scene and again there's so many characters that we didn't get to talk about um that all bring their own flair to to the situation um and to the to the film overall but we just can't i mean we've already talked just about this one movie for quite some time so we both need to wrap up um corwin give me your rating of do the right thing five out of five perfect movie uh i'm 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 waffling between four and a half and five um so i'm just gonna leave it at that because i don't want to give I'm going to argue with myself constantly if I give either one of them. Um, I love this movie. It's it's a great fucking movie. Somewhere between four and a half and five stars. <laughs> four point nine. It misses zero point one points or zero point one stars, whatever the currency is, um, for, for for Spike Lee's acting. Uh, Perfect. Outside of that, I mean, you know what? That's fair. So but, well written. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it at that. All right. I, any- I don't want to have to start another discussion on this. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Anything else you'd like to say about either of these two films before we leave? I am content with where we are, with where we're leaving them. All right. Well, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Juicing Pod. If you want to hit us up, other movies email. to pick, sir. Oh shit! That's right. I forgot we're picking the movies now. Uh, oh. All right. I forgot we started to do that ahead of time. 
core right, will. I'll go first to give you some time to think of a movie. Um, Thanks, pal. I need, I need it. <laughs> um, so I want to go back to another one of my favorite directors. Um, I've been wanting to pick The Big Lebowski for some time just because I think that is a perfect comedy. Um, but I do enjoy going and finding films uh, that I haven't seen yet. And to go back to the same directors, uh, two of my favorite, Joel and Ethan Cohen, um, and to find something I haven't seen before, I want to go with True Grit, the 2010 Western oh. remake of a John Wayne classic. This is actually a movie I started to watch uh, back when I was very much in a Western kick for a while. Um, and then Matt Damon's accent was kind of like, ah, I don't want to watch this. I want to watch Clint Eastwood instead. So I never actually got through it. Um, but now that I am more mature, more more diverse in my palate and taste of movies, I'm going to give this another shot. All right, all right. True Grit 2010. Uh, the Cohen Brothers, Jews making westerns. Love to see it. Um, I am going. I've been uh, wanting to rewatch a few Wes Anderson movies. Um, I'm debating as I'm talking between um the royal tenenbaums and um not bottle rocket what's the one that came right after that uh shit <laughs> that would have been good uh, to have on deck dispatch. Uh, nah that's not it um maybe oh maybe it is it and i'm just getting the order wrong that doesn't really matter um i have i'm a really big fan of wes anderson which is i'm sure a very tacky thing to say at some points but um rushmore that's what i'm thinking, trying to think uh, of trying to think of rushmore so i mean th- these two movies are back to back they are um uh his second and third film third films uh rushmore is one of my favorites but i haven't watched royal tenenbaums in a while i will pull the trigger and say royal tenenbaums god damn it yeah, I know you're already typed. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. It's called Tenon Bombs, right? But I don't care. Uh, yeah, because I said on uh, like two, three weeks ago that I was going to pick a Wes Anderson movie and never did. So, oh well, then I perfect. Actually got around to watching it. All right, so True Grit and Royal Tenon Bombs. Those are our two movies for next Thursday's edition of the podcast. Actually, there's one more things we had to discuss, which we'll do super quick. Corwin, do you like the Rams' new uniforms? I fucking hate them. They All have right. so much potential, and it's just uh, the gradient. The it looks like frosting that's like piping the outside of the numbers. The stupid advertising patch that they're putting in place on the shoulder to for when they actually do get advertising. I just there's so much potential here. I don't mind the bone colors. Uh, I think the home and away though, or or the home and alternate whatever it is, are are bad. Uh, I said i like them and i've revisited my opinion and i think that the reason i my initial reaction is to like them is i love the colors i'm a big fan of bold colors like that it has a very pop art feel um and i just live for pop art at the same time though getting into the actual nitty-gritty of it it is a very awkward jersey for all the reasons you said um which is a shame because again i genuinely love those colors um as i sit here staring at my throwback milwaukee brewers jersey um or milwaukee brewers hat which is like literally the exact same colors that um very vibrant 
royal blue and the um, equally vibrant yellow. The yellow I, seems brighter than I remember it being. Like I think uh, it is the last uniforms. I don't like that they went. Uh, I think they went too bright with it. It might just be the lighting. I mean, we'll see for certain once the season starts. But no, yeah, I think you're right. I think it. I think they they both have a a more vibrant tone, which I again genuinely enjoy, and I think fits them fine enough because they were already pretty bright to begin with. So stepping up a bit isn't a huge stretch. At the same time, though actually looking at the close-up images after Corbin sent me a few. Oh, that piping is so awkward. I don't get why you would put a patch there in in uh, anticipation of when you would be getting another patch. Like, that's just stupid. And, like, why would you do that ahead of time? Like, why take the time to design something to go there that you're expecting to ultimately be covered up anyway? Um, but I love the colors. Yeah. I'm I'm warming up to the colors. I think the the piping on the legs, the stripe, um, it's like off balance, and I, it just seems awkward. I still don't like the broken horn logo where it's separated. No, it's bars. still terrible. Um, still looks super tacky. Uh, just I don't know. I just don't know how to feel about these yet. I feel like the problem with the color yellow being too bright is that the uniforms that are like shown having that being a prominent color are shown on yellow backgrounds, which just makes it very blown out and over the top. So hopefully it gets better, but uh, I don't hold out a lot of hope for these. Yeah, I wouldn't either. But all right, we can talk more in depth about it later. Let's get out of here today. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at JuicingPod. If you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at JuicingTheNumbers at gmail.com. And until Monday, y'all have a good one. Bye.